Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Depot Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, seeking to bring you the very best in apologetics information, and today is no exception. When I started sharing the news about what's going to be on this show, and now people realize they'd have to wait till it came out on iTunes, and were so many people were saying, I don't want to wait, I don't want to wait, let's play it now. Well, now the time has come. Today, we are going to be talking about a real hot topic. We are going to be talking about... The concept of God in the Old Testament, and is God a moral monster? Well, who better to discuss this than the person who wrote the book, Is God a Moral Monster? Paul Copan. Now, who is Paul Copan? Well, according to his bio, he's got a PhD in philosophy from Marquette University. He's professor and pleasure family chair of philosophy and ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He served as president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. He's the author and editor of 30 books, including The Rationality of Theism, The Rutledge Companion to Philosophy of Religion, Philosophy of Religion, Classic and Contemporary Issues, The Gospel in the Marketplace of Ideas, An Introduction to Biblical Ethics, Is God a Moral Monster, and True for You But Not for Me. He has contributed essays to over 30 books, both scholarly and popular. He and his wife, Jacqueline, have six children, and they reside in West Palm Beach, Florida. His website is paulcopan.com. So, uh, Dr. Copan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Very good to be with you, Nick. Very good to have you here. Um, that was an academic intro that we have for you, but if people don't know you well, um, what's a little bit about your story and how you got to be doing what you're doing? All right. Well, I... Grew up in a Christian home, but it wasn't until high school that I started to see the very clear objective foundations for the Christian faith. That it wasn't simply uh, a faith that I believed or ought to believe because my parents passed it on to me, uh, but rather it was something that I could own my, for myself. It was something that was objectively true. And the more I studied, say, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus or the trustworthiness of the scriptures, I began to see how the Christian faith was something that was objectively true. It was something that was good news for all people. It wasn't just true for me, but not necessarily for other people. And so this was a remarkable revelation to me, that it was something that really uh, took hold of me in a, in a new way when I was in high school. And so... Uh, in college, I did a undergraduate degree in biblical studies and then went on to uh, to Trinity Seminary to get a Master of Divinity degree. But when I was there at Trinity Seminary, I took a, a class with the 
uh, evangelical philosopher Stuart Hackett. Uh, mm. That was my first semester there, and it was a class called Religious Epistemology in the Study of Knowledge. Uh, and it opened up my eyes to new ways of thinking. Uh, it helped me to see how the Christian faith answers uh, the many of the common objections that people raise uh, about the way things are, how we can know, etc. And so it was an eye-opening class for me, and so I decided to not only get a Master of Divinity, but also a Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion. Uh, and also, while I was at Trinity Seminary, I took classes with William Lane Craig, and so that was a, a wonderful relationship that has blossomed into a, a real partnership in which uh, Bill Craig uh, and I have uh, teamed up in, in writing and co-editing books together, and so it's been, and also being uh, leader in the leadership of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. But uh, going back a little bit, uh, when I was on staff of the church in New York, uh, and uh, getting to know college students and engaging with their ideas, it was very helpful for me to see how, again, the Christian faith was able to address the questions that they were asking. It did a better job uh, of addressing questions than their own uh, worldviews were offering. And so through that experience with, uh, with college students, uh, I saw the, the increased, uh, increasingly, uh, increasing value uh, of the uh, of uh, having this kind of a background and, and to pursue uh, a further degree would be really a, a marvelous capstone for this pursuit. And so it's actually my wife who encouraged me to consider a, getting a PhD. And so we had four children at the time, uh, and uh, we our fifth one was born in Wisconsin after I went to Mar started going to Marquette University. And it was just a, a marvelous time of again building on what I had experienced. Uh, and then I, uh, I had gotten to meet uh, Ravi Zacharias so while I was living in New York, mm -hmm. and it was you know, we stayed in contact, and he invited me to come on staff with him uh, to speak on university campuses and also to teach at various seminaries in the area of apologetics and philosophy. Uh, and so I did that. I was on staff for five and a half years with. Well, I uh, think Ravi I remember Christ. that. Pardon? I think I remember that. Yeah. And so, so anyway, that one thing led to another, and then uh, through publications and so forth, would would eventually and teaching would eventually come to Palm Beach Atlantic University, mm -hmm. where I am now. Been here for ten years, and so it's been a, a great opportunity for uh, for writing, for researching, for speaking, for leadership in the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So, so that's a little bit of the unfolding of my mm -hmm. own uh, path in philosophy of religion and apologetics. Yeah, for those who are curious of what I was just saying, that the first time I got to meet you was, in fact, at RZIM when I came down there one day to meet Robbie, and you were there. Mm. I'm not sure if you remember that, but I do. Okay, well, I, I've met a lot of people coming through. I did, I, when I'd seen you, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, did, I don't know if you mentioned that to me, but uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and uh, also... Uh, Something amusing I've heard about Feminoff for you is that I've heard you have a cat named Renee. Well, we used to. That was the cat that we had in uh, New York, yes. It was named after uh, the philosopher Rene Descartes. Uh, you know, so we called him Rene Descartes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, after we had, uh, had, his, had his claws removed as a little kitten, we, we thought of calling him Rene Claude, But we uh, decided not. Another name in the running was Emmanuel Cat. But uh, we decided to stick with Renee. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I found a lot of your books on the popular level are really some of the best books out there for that, those kinds of topics, such as True For You, Not For Me, and How Do You Know You're Not Wrong, When God Goes to Starbucks, books like that. Because these are really addressing what the people on the street are hearing, what they're hearing on the Internet. And there are short enough chapters that someone can go and get a general feel of a topic, but they also point to leading works beyond them. Would you care to comment on why you've taken that approach? Well, the book that I began at all, so to speak, was uh, True for You and Not for Me, which was published back in 1998, just as I started working with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Mm -hmm. And I saw the value of putting something together that was accessible to people who you know, had questions about how to respond to relativism, how do you respond to religious pluralism. And so it was actually a, a larger book that I had envisioned, or at least a book that was in larger chunks. And then the publisher, or the editor at Bethany House Publishers, suggested maybe breaking up my very large chapters into smaller accessible and self-contained ones so that I could, uh, you know, in a sense, make it more of a handbook for people and they could dip in according to the particular slogan that they heard, like, uh, you know, that's true for you but not for me, or, uh, or, you know, all religions are basically the same or something like mm -hmm. that. And so I revised the book and it really did well. Uh, mm -hmm. People seemed to gravitate toward that approach. It was a good way of bridging the, you know, again, it was trying to work in the scholarly area, but also translate that into a more popular, uh, accessible uh, manner. And so I, I just built on that in future volumes. And so I just had, uh, you know, again, when God goes to Starbucks, uh, you know, how do you know you're not wrong? Uh, you know, that's just your interpretation. Those were books that follow the same sort of format of self-contained chapters, having bullet points at the end of the chapters, and then recommended reading at the end of those chapters as well. So those have, in a sense, <coughs> connected with people, and uh, and uh, people have uh, pre expressed appreciation that it helps to translate some uh, maybe harder to understand concepts into ways that they can think about them, grasp them, and uh, and then they give them give them further resources for further exploration. Okay. So how do we then get to a book like Is God a Moral Monster, which seems to be rather a long book on one topic in particular. What led to the writing of this book? <laughs> well, the topic of Old Testament ethical challenges has been one that I've been interested in. And, of course, there are certain questions about the ancient Near East and how it seems that there are such, uh, there's such a different mindset, a different way of thinking about things, and... Uh, and, and how do we think about those in our modern you know, 21st century world? And so I actually started to read some of these new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and so on, and start, saw a common theme, namely complaints against the God of the Old Testament. And so what prompted me to launch into a book project was Actually, you know, first the response to an article that I wrote in Philosophia Christi, uh, a journal of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was on the topic again: is 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 Yahweh a moral monster? And then 
uh, you know, I was dealing with various themes in the Old Testament. I, I addressed in, in a sense, seed form uh, some of these themes, such as the Old Testament uh, laws regarding slavery slash servitude or uh, warfare in the Old Testament. Uh, and, uh, and, and what I tried to do was to make some philosophical and ethical sense of these commands, of the context, uh, putting that in its proper place, uh, and, and again, trying to help build that bridge or bridge that gap uh, of the, from the ancient Near East to today. And then there was a book symposium that came, or, or sorry, a, a sympo an issue uh, symposium that came later on in Philosophia Christi, and it was on the topic, you know, did uh, God mandate genocide? And so there are a few critics uh, of my view, and then I offered a couple of supporters as well. And uh, basically I had the, a, a summary response uh, to you know, all of these uh, you know, to all of these questioners and, uh, and good critics, and uh, that would eventually lead to my working on the book "Is God a Moral Monster?" So I had a lot of good material to work with, and so it uh, so I was able to deal with topics such as warfare in the Old Testament, servitude in the Old Testament, uh, those strange laws that we come across in the in the Old Testament, the kosher laws, and so forth, and and what about those punishments that we see. Uh, in the Old Testament, of, you know, capital punishment for this or that, uh, and, uh, and and also trying to address the topic: are, are women considered inferior in the Old Testament? And then bringing uh, some of the some of the questions to a to a head in dealing with the topic: Does religion cause violence? And then I, at the end of the book, look at actually how the Christian faith has made an impact. It's kind of ironic that those critics, like the new atheists, who are uh, launching criticisms against the Christian faith. It's actually the Christian faith that has actually laid the foundations for human rights and human dignity, uh, that uh, democracy and, and so many other gains in the West have their roots in the Christian faith, not in the Enlightenment, not in Greek democracy, but actually, which is actually not uh, genuine democracy, uh, if you look closely. But, but again, it's very interesting to see that you have the, the very roots of our, our moral thinking that, you know, that has been shaped, uh, again, through Scripture, a lot of these critics are now, in a sense, turning their backs on these influences and uh, lashing out at, quote, the God of the Old Testament, uh, and, in a sense, forgetting their heritage. And so what I try to do is put that into a, a proper context for understanding uh, where we've come from and to, uh, indeed, show some of the hypocrisy that is behind some of those criticisms that have been launched by the new atheists and others. I understand with some of your other critics, you've got a book coming out in the near future, I'm guessing, with Matthew Flanagan on this topic, right? That is correct, yes. It's a book coming out in October with uh, Baker Books, mm -hmm. and the book is entitled, Did God Really Command Genocide? And this will be a full-length treatment of the, uh, of the topic of uh, violence, uh, in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. uh, we look at a whole range of topics. Uh, we look at the, the uh, and again, probably some of the stuff we'll get into a little bit later on, but we look at uh, you know, some of the criticisms that are launched by, say, Raymond Bradley, an atheist philosopher. Uh, we'll, we'll look at some of the, you know, what does it mean for the Bible to be the Word of God? Because a lot of times people think, oh, 
God commanded this, therefore this is God's command to us. And a lot of people will make that faulty uh, jump uh, to the present saying, well, if God commanded it back then, he could do that now. And uh, well, But we're, we look more closely at the topic, well, what does it mean for the Bible to be the Word of God? And, uh, and we also have a chapter in there on the topic, uh, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New? And so we look at a couple of Old Testament scholars, Eric Seibert and Peter Enns, who really, they, they form quite a chasm between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, and what we try to do is say, you know, actually the, the God of God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is one who is both kind and severe. Uh, the very God that we see in the Old Testament. So the Jesus who says, love your enemies, is the same one who says, if one of someone leads one of these little ones astray, it'd be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yes, that's the Jesus who said, "Love and pray for your enemies." Uh, so, so it's important to keep those those things in mind, and, and that uh, when we come to Jesus, we're not looking at uh, at, at uh, someone who is radically different or is espousing a, a radically different God from the God of the Old Testament. In fact, he talks about punishment. You know, that the one who dishonors his father and mother should be put to death. Jesus is the one who says that in Matthew 15. Uh, so it's not as though Jesus is kind of trying to excuse what's going on in the Old Testament. He's one who fully identifies himself with, uh, with the God of the Old Testament as, and as his agent in the world. And we, then we look at, if I may just kind of jump in here, we'll, we'll look at the topics, you know, does God command us to kill innocent human beings? Uh, are the Canaanites themselves innocent? Uh, and what about the command to drive out or dispossess the Canaanites? Uh, you know, how does that square with the command to utterly destroy or leave alive nothing that breathes? And we get into the topic of how this is uh, a lot of, we see a lot of hyperbolic uh, or exaggerated language that is being utilized in these texts. And so we, uh, and then we go from there to look at objections to the hyperbolic interpretation and also look at some recent, even recent uh, cases in international law with regard to human rights in the former Yugoslavia, and we apply some of these rulings regarding genocide, and we say that that is actually a faulty label to use for what is going on in the Old Testament in light of these more recent uh, modern-day rulings uh, in the former Yugoslavia. And then we look at things like uh, you know, more of the, some philosophical challenges like the Euthyphro argument. Uh, we look at the uh, idea of you know, is it possible for God to command killing? I mean, we wouldn't have indication of the innocent uh, being killed, but we do have, uh, you, know, you know, what if somebody says, well, what if innocents were killed? Uh, like in a just war setting, sometimes people who are innocent are killed. Uh, well, is it, you know, you know, can God justifiably command something if he knows that people will, you know, innocent lives might be taken in the process? And so we, we look at that, and we say actually that the command to, uh, you know, the command to to uh, to kill, even if it means killing the innocent, is not, and you know, again, is should not be somehow seen as, uh, you know, a negative against God because we actually have exceptions to general moral rules, like when a plane is hijacked and it's going to be used as a weapon by terrorists, and a, and a president orders the plane to be shot out of the sky, even if it means killing innocent civilians on board it would be morally justifiable. And so we have to be careful about absolutizing a rule saying this could never be morally justifiable when actually a wide range of ethical schools recognize that there are cases of supreme emergency. There are cases of, uh, you know, of, there are exceptions 
uh, in, in certain overriding cases. And so we also need to consider that. And so what if a good and all-wise God actually uh, you know, commanded something because he had overriding reasons for doing so? Uh, is it not rational to, to allow for that? And we argue, yes, it is. In fact, uh, you know, one of the chapters we look at is the, the, the whole issue of the role of miracles and how these commands were not given to Moses when he was just in private and, and, uh, and, and there was no verification of these things, which is in, in, in contradistinction to, say, someone like Muhammad or Joseph Smith, uh, you know, these private revelations. No, we actually have a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to, again, repeatedly authenticate the leadership of Moses before the people of Israel. And, of course, uh, Joshua himself. You know, we see the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan. We see manna uh, in the wilderness. We see uh, those who oppose Moses' leadership. We see, uh, for example, Korah and 250 uh, 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 with him uh, are swallowed up by the earth for all of Israel to see, vindicating the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Uh, so we have repeated signs, multi-century signs and, and wonders that are being performed for all of Israel. So, uh, so you have God's you know, stamp of approval uh, of Moses as well as Joshua in all of this. Uh, and then in the, as we go on, sorry to you know, go on here, but I'm kind of preparing the soil and it actually covers some of the things that we, I talk about in the book is God a Little Monster. But in the final chapters of this book, we have the topic, does religion cause violence? Uh, we compare uh, Yahweh wars in the Old Testament uh, to Islamic Jihad. Then we also deal with the question, uh, did the Old Testament war texts inspire the Crusades? And we argue, uh, no, they did not. And then we deal with, the, in the final chapter, the question of you know, turning the other cheek, pacifism, and just war. And so we, it's a really a full-bodied work mm -hmm. that uh, has gotten some wonderful endorsements from Old Testament scholars like uh, Alan uh, Millard, um, uh, at the, you know, from, uh, a British uh, Old Testament scholar or, you know, and uh, an archaeologist. Uh, and John Golden Gay, and Christopher Wright, and uh, Gordon Wenham, uh, and, and others. So just wanted to uh, give you a, a bigger picture of what, uh, what to anticipate, but I'm very excited about the book, and uh, trust it will be well received. Yeah, for him, I'm pretty excited about it, too. In fact, if you and Dr. Flanagan, or both of you, want to come back on in October and talk about the book, we'd be more than welcome to have you come on. Well, sounds good. Let's talk about it. Okay. Well, let's talk about after the show. Uh, for now, let's get back to the interview on the God Delusion. Now, you on uh, is God a more monster? And I'm talking about the God Delusion because one of our friends, Richard Dawkins, has a wonderful quote in there that shows how much he thinks of the God of the Old Testament. And I'm sure you know what quote this is, but for the audience here it is. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And that's on his good days, by the way. So, you know, it looks like Richard Dawkins has really cast the gauntlet down. What do you think about his uh, opening assessment? Well, I, I find it ironic, and this is one of the things I point out in the book, uh, Is God a Moral Monster, hmm. is that Richard Dawkins elsewhere denies that there is any such thing as good or evil in a world of selfish genes and electrons. 
uh, in his book, River Out of Eden, mm-hmm. he says that there is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference in this material world. There is no, there can be no good or evil, just a good, quote, good luck or bad luck. Uh, some of us are going to get hurt, others won't, and that's just the way it is. Well, if that's his outlook, uh, how can he be so hostile to, quote, religion or any sort of alleged evil because evil does not exist in Richard Dawkins' world. Uh, you know, in fact, he go, but, but yet he will go on to speak on the other side of his mouth, and he'll do a BBC documentary on religion as the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so, but he does, he does come clean somewhat in his book, uh, the Devil's Chaplain, where he says that on the one hand, as an academic, he is a passionate Darwinian, that through natural selection, uh, we see that certain things unfold and develop, and uh, and that this is just the way things are, and you, you know, there is no right or wrong, good or evil about it, it's just the way it is. But then, when it comes, he says, when it comes to things like political and social and ethical issues, uh, he is a passionate anti-Darwinian. He wants to persuade people of the rightness of his perspective. He wants to uh, to convince people that he is really, uh, you know, on the right side of issues. But yet, he has this uh, again this huge gap between what he professes as an academic and how his worldview is lived out in the real world. He can't live up to the, uh, you know, again, the reality of the way things are, uh, mm-hmm. given his academic uh, position. Mm-hmm. So he has to live inconsistently. The, the Christian, by, by contrast, does not have to have this kind of a uh, theoretical, uh, practical, uh, you know, uh, again, you know, the, the, this, with a chasm in between, no, we actually can bring them together in uh, in how God has revealed Himself. It's very interesting. I was actually on a uh, I was speaking. I actually heard Richard Dawkins speak at Nova Southeastern University a few years ago, and I was the first one up to the microphone uh, when I asked him this question. By the way, the audio is available, you know, at a at a blog. Uh, I, I I blogged on this. And my, it's called my recent interaction with Richard Dawkins, and you can actually hear the audio on this. But I asked Richard Dawkins this question. I said. You know, in your book, River Out of Eden, you said that we are, uh, there is no good or evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, and that we are simply dancing to the music of our DNA. And I said, if that's the case, how is it that you, as an atheist or naturalist, think that naturalism is more rational than theism if the, the naturalist and the theist both believe things that have been formed in them by material forces over which they have no control. And Richard Dawkins says, well, it's because science works. And, of course, he wasn't getting anywhere close to the answer, and he talked about Democrats and Republicans, and again, was not really addressing the issue. And then his final quip did not address the issue either. He said, and besides, science flies rockets to the moon, but religion flies planes into buildings. Now, the problem with this is, of course, that the Muslim terrorists were themselves dancing to the music of their DNA. How Mm -hmm. could they be held responsible for their actions? 
you see the atheistic, naturalistic worldview, uh, again, in which we are simply the products of material, deterministic uh, forces over which we have no control, uh, you know, shape our beliefs. And so we are, we are not uh, free-willing, morally responsible agents, but we are simply uh, thrown into the mix of all these material forces. And, uh, and so rationality, morality, you know, knowledge, you know, all of these things are thrown into question because the naturalistic worldview has no room for them. Uh, metaphysically speaking, mm -hmm. uh, unlike the theistic worldview in which we've been made in the image of a good God who has made us in his image, he has made us uh, as a rational being, he has made us to, uh, to think about things, to rise above material forces, to reflect on them, uh, to make conscious choices in light of those considerations. So the, the theist has the, uh, the metaphysical uh, wherewithal, the, 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 the resources to address these sorts of issues, whereas naturalism simply fails uh, you know, as you go down the list. So, so again, that was my an interesting interaction with Richard Dawkins that I just wanted to throw in there. Uh, but, but again, I, I do address that in my uh, book, Is God a Moral Monster? Well, you talk about how a theist can live consistently, but Clint Dawkins say, well, you all are living inconsistently because you claim to serve a good God and this good God is clearly all these things that I've said in this quote in the Old Testament. Why would you want to worship the God of the Old Testament? So, I mean, is Dawkins wrong about the God of the Old Testament? Well, I, I find it very interesting that uh, the, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, one, again, seems to be very hostile uh, to uh, to. To belief in God, he seems you know seems to have a certain chip on his shoulder. Uh, there are others who take the language even you know even further, uh, such as uh, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, who talk about uh, you know again killing uh, millions of Muslims because Islam is a threat to civilization, and so even if it means a preemptive strike to kill uh, you know millions of, of Muslims, uh, innocent children, and so forth. Uh, that they would be willing to to do that in order to save civilization. Well, my question is, well, you know, uh, what's what's the difference here between what you're saying about the God of the Old Testament and your own uh, elevated modern views of saving civilization? Uh, it sounds like the same sorts of things are uh, you know going on here. I mean, I've qualified some of these differences here, but I think that there is a lot more to be said for. Uh, for bridging the gap, there are a lot of, I think, some similarities here. And when we're talking about the Canaanites, what we're talking about is people who are engaged in criminal activity. These are people who are engaging in, again, you know, temple prostitution, uh, you know, ritualized sex, uh, incest, human sacrifice. I mean, these are things that would be criminalized, bestiality, things that would be criminalized in you know, any civilized society. So when we're talking about the Canaanites, we're not simply talking about, oh, these are just people who are uh, have some sort of alternative lifestyle. These are people who are you know, just kind of doing their own things. We might think it's a little bit different, but hey, they're, that's okay. That's just their way of doing things, but it's not really all that bad. No, we're talking about serious criminal wrongdoing. Uh, we're talking about people who are a, uh, a negative uh, and in the evil influence 
uh, to the people around them. And so it is, and, and also it is a time at which God says, well, enough is enough. And so he utilizes the Israelites to, uh, to drive them out, in a sense, to evict them uh, from the land that he has promised Israel, but not before they have reached rock bottom in terms of moral corruption. So that's the sort of scenario we're talking about. So when people say, oh, this is the God who, who does these sorts of things, you know, genocidal and, and so forth, well, you know, I, I think that you're, you're actually not portraying this fairly. It's easy to uh, win rhetorical points, but when you look at the specifics, you start to see that there are a lot more, uh, the issues are a lot more complex and nuanced. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's, it's often the reverse of the very things that, uh, that are being proclaimed by Richard Dawkins and his ilk. Yeah, some critic could say, well, that's just what the Bible has to say about those who are risen. And of course, Israel is going to try and paint these people as evil to justify their actions. Do we really have any evidence that these people were really engaging in this kind of behavior outside of the Bible? Well, of course, this assumes that we should not take the Bible seriously, uh, that the Bible is to be doubted unless we have some sort of corroborating evidence. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of people who uh, talk about the Apostle Paul and some of his claims that he is making about the Judaism of his day. Well, you know, I think Paul was a lot closer to the Judaism of his day than we modern scholars uh, talking about Paul in the 21st century. Uh, and in the same way, when you have mention of these sorts of actions that are being done, that these are the reasons that the people of Canaan are being evicted from their land, these abominations and so forth. Well, this is a lot closer to the time of what is happening. This is a lot closer to uh, what's actually on the ground. I mean, we do have indications of, of, uh, you know, of, of infant sacrifices as we get to, for example, the Sidonians and, and uh, you know, again, uh, you know, mass graves of, uh, of uh, you know, or, or, you know, graves where, where children had been sacrificed, or, or just areas where you find uh, you know, the, these bodies of, of, of infants that have been sacrificed. These are the sorts of things that are going on in, uh, you know, in, in that day. You do have ritualized uh, sex, for example. In fact, you, know, you can read the literature of the Canaanites, and you can see how there's incest, there's bestiality uh, that the gods are performing. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't think it's uh, far-fetched that the, uh, the moral fruits the moral thinking uh, of uh, you know of the you know, of regarding the pantheon of these uh, these deities, uh, you would fil- would would filter down to the people themselves who would practice these sorts of things. Hey, if you know Baal or you know uh, you know Asherah have done these sorts of things, well, why not? You know, you know, what about us? Why can't we do these things? And so so that's the kind of uh, that's the sort of thinking that was in the theology of the Canaanites. And, and so it's important for us to remember these sort of things that are indeed accessible to us, uh, that this sort of, these sorts of practices are not far-fetched. In fact, God himself is bringing judgment. The prophets are denouncing the Israelites for doing the same sorts of things that these Canaanites have been practicing, like uh, kings allowing their, their children, their sons and daughters, to pass through the fire, that is, to offer them up as uh, as as, uh, as sacrificial offerings, uh, you know, before say the god Moloch or whatever. So this is this sort of thing is going on. It's it's very very much a part of the literature of the Israelites, both uh, in terms of what the Canaanites were practicing and what the Israelites were doing in copying the Canaanites. So again, it, it seems like we have a very good case for uh, for the integrity of the biblical witness on this. 
Uh, I think it's also important to keep in mind, too, that when we're looking at the, uh, the scriptures, uh, a lot of times what people want to do is they will, they will not allow the, uh, the integrity of the scriptures to maintain uh, that there is, say, a God who exists and a God who judges. Uh, they, in a sense, they will want to say, well, uh, you, know, what if, you know, what if some army came in and did the sorts of things that the Israelites did. Well, of course, this presumes a very naturalistic understanding of things, that there was no God who really commanded the Israelites to, to do these things. It was actually just the Israelites who were eager for plunder and so forth, that that was what motivated them to do that. Well, once you remove God from the picture, a God who is angry with sin and wickedness and who brings judgment on people, once you remove that God from the picture, well, then you basically make the story of the scriptures meaningless. The narrative is basically eviscerated. It's sort of like taking Gandalf out of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, I mean, you don't, have, you don't have as significant a story here. It, it, it loses so much of its integrity by removing this major figure. And in the same way, by removing the supernatural, by removing the, the, the God who does miracles and signs and wonders in, e in Egypt, who brings his people out, uh, who, who de demonstrates his presence through manna every day, through the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night over the camp of the Israelites. You, know, you remove that, and, uh, and again, it's just a, a, you know, this lame, uh, naturalistic story. Uh, and again, you need to, we need to preserve the integrity of God at the center of all of this in order to make sense of what is going on. And so we need to, you know, if you're going to play fair, at least allow the story to play out, even if you don't believe in God. Allow the story to remain intact and engage with the Israelites who do believe in this God, who do, uh, who do believe very strongly that this God has spoken, has revealed himself in signs and wonders and so forth, and let, let that play out, even if you disagree. But don't just remove God from the story and say, okay, let's pick it apart without God who commands, without a God who has good purposes for Israel, and, and it is morally justified in bringing judgment upon these peoples who are uh, acting in these criminal ways. Well, let's start looking at some specific accounts, and I'll start with one of the favorite ones I often hear, and I'll try and present the best way that I can, but I usually hear from atheists online and in the literature and such, and that, that's, when we go to Numbers 31, and you got this group of people in the desert, wilderness, running around called the Midianites, and right. God decides to have the Israelites go and attack them and totally destroy them. Well, it's not total destruction, though, because they get to keep the virgins for themselves, which, well, obviously we know what goes on. They keep the virgins for themselves. And this has to be genocide, doesn't it? Well, that is the argument, isn't it? Yes, it is. Let's see, uh, of course, what we need to do is go back to Numbers 25. Mm -hmm. and, and I go into a lot, and Matt Flanagan and I go into a lot more detail on this in this uh, book, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? Uh, and, and what's interesting is that you have Moses, uh, you know, again, you know, carrying out God's command in chapter 31, but what is the reason for his carrying out this command to you know, wipe out these, the, you know, the, the adult males? Well, it is actually because, of course, Balaam, the pagan prophet, is actually giving this inspiration uh, to the uh, king uh, Balak of uh, Moab to basically 
if, if, if Balaam can't curse the people of Israel, he can come up with a plan to create a treacherous situation, basically a treasonous uh, situation where the Israelites in this act at Baal Peor turn their backs on the God with whom they have made a covenant so that he will curse them. So they engage in idolatry, they engage, engage in adultery, and of course these are two key areas where the Israelites are to be distinctive and to, not to resemble the Canaanites. And here they have basically, it, it says they have broken faith, they have acted treasonously or acted treacherously, uh, and they have joined themselves to, and, uh, and uh, you know, Numbers 31 talks about this, how they joined themselves to Baal uh, at Peor. And what, what this signifies is that they have basically negated the covenant that was made with, you know, between God and Israel at Mount Sinai. And they have acted treacherously or treasonously. It, it, and basically, what is in question, what is at issue is the very identity of the nation of Israel. That Israel has now thoroughly compromised itself through the instigation of Balaam, the, this pagan prophet. And this has led to God's anger because they have violated very, very egregiously the, the terms of the covenant. And so therefore they are now vulnerable to God's own cursing them. God didn't want to curse them uh, through, uh, through, you know, he gave oracles to Balaam uh, and said he wasn't going to curse them, that God was going to bless them. Well, Balaam tried in an underhanded way to, to uh, get God to curse them through their very breaking of this treaty. Again, a common true form of treaty in the ancient Near East in the second millennium BC. Uh, we see this in the Hittite treaties and so forth, that, that this is basically followed that the suzerain or the lord, the master, the, you know, he says to the vassals or the servant, uh, the people, that if you make a covenant with me, uh, you know, I will protect you, but you must serve me and so forth. Well, the Israelites have just broken that. And again, this cuts at the heart of their national uh, identity, their spiritual identity, their, you know, again, their theological roots are now being, uh, you know, being uh, threatened. And so, this, again, this is not just some sort of an act where, yeah, just, you know, some guys just went off and uh, committed adultery. No, this, is, this cuts the heart of what God has arranged with the Israelites to be his God, to, for him to be their God, uh, and for them to be his people. And so this is now all being challenged. This is all being thrown up into, you know, you know uh, the realm of uncertainty. What is going to happen? Israel? How is Israel going to hold together as the people of God? That's how severe it is. It's sort of like, you know, again, the, the language of treachery or treason uh, needs to be brought in here because it does deal with national identity and national integrity. So, so what we have then is when God commands Moses to utterly destroy the males, or you know, the, the adult males, it says that Moses, in chapter 31, did all that the Lord commanded. Well, if we take that at face value, if we take that, in a sense, literally, uh, as many people do, then we have a, a real question that comes up. Where then do we have, you know, how, how is it that these Midianites who have been destroyed now show up in Judges chapter 6, verse 5, where it says that the Midianite army comes upon the Israelites 
and it says that they are too numerous to count, including their camels. You couldn't even, you know, they're innumerable uh, Midianites who are coming. Again, this is using uh, you know, the language of exaggeration, uh, we would argue. And that this is something that is, you know, that, that you know, Moses, it says he did all of this, he did what the Lord commanded, but yet you see many, many survivors uh, who are here. So that's, that's one point to keep in mind. Secondly, what's interesting is that God does not command Moses to do anything further, because we're told that Moses did what the Lord commanded uh, early on in chapter 31 in verse 7. It's, it's Moses' further command that you know, talks about these, uh, these, these women and so forth. So, so there is this question, you know, is this even the command of God? And there are various scholars who would argue that, no, this is Moses' own command, rather than the command of the Lord, because we read earlier that Moses did what the Lord commanded. He, he, he finished that, he accomplished that. And so, so again, I won't go into more detail on that, but that's really at the, those are some issues at the heart of the matter. Of course, Moses said and did things that were not pleasing the Lord. In fact, he, you know, just he wasn't infallible, uh, and he even, you know, when he um, you know, spoke rashly at the uh, waters of, uh, you know, of, of of Meribah, where he, you know, struck the rock. Again, it wasn't the striking of the rock that was the problem, but rather it says he spoke rashly, and he he and both Aaron and both. Uh, exhibited uh, a, a lack of faith, a, a, a spirit of unbelief, and that's why neither of them could enter into the promised land, as we read that in chapter 20 of the book of Numbers. So, so again, it doesn't mean just because Moses is a prophet of God doesn't mean that he is infallible in everything that he says, uh, even though generally he has a, a, a good track record, of course. Yeah, but what about the idea about keeping the virgins? Doesn't that mean well, that they were engaging in rape? Yeah, okay, that's a, that's a good question. Well, as we get to uh, Deuteronomy 21, uh, we see that there is a particular ceremony that Israelite soldiers have to go through, that if they are to take a wife, mm-hmm. there is to be a separation, uh, a period of separation from her own culture. She is shaved, she has a change of clothes, uh, her head is you know, shaved, her toenails, her, her fingernails are clipped and so forth, uh, and it is to be a time of transition into life in Israel. And it was an opportunity, and again, if a person uh, decided not to marry her for whatever reason, she was not to be treated in a, uh, in a uh, negative way. She was to be treated in a, in a, in a fair way uh, and to be cared for uh, in Israel. But, but what we have here are regulations that do not allow for any sort of rape. There has to be a proper ceremony that is entered into for marriage. And in fact, premarital sex was prohibited in Israel, that sex outside of marriage was not at all allowed, and that it was the expectation that a person be a virgin upon entering into marriage, unless you married someone who was, say, a you know, widow or a widower, that was the expectation. You know, we read, you know one, one passage in the book of Numbers, you know, I, you know, I, I, I assumed my wife was a virgin, but it proved, you know, but but you know, and this person claims that she was not, and so there's this uh, ceremony that goes that goes through that one to go through the bitter water ceremony. Uh, to, and again, the assumption here is that virginity was an expectation for the people of Israel that they, there was not to be a violation uh, of this. Uh, you know, we see this early on in in uh, Judah, uh, you know, in his life, where he in the book of Genesis he goes into Tamar, who is dressed up as a prostitute. Well, he condemns her for engaging in this sort of activity, but 
again, she reveals the, uh, you know, the, you know, his, uh, you know, his staff and, and signet ring, and you know, and, and says, well, these are the sorts of things that, you know, to whom do these belong? Well, it belongs to Judah, who himself has acted shamefully. Again, there was not to be this sort of, uh, you know, sexual activity, uh, even with, you know, with a prostitute, say, you know, outside. You know, there was not to be that sort of activity outside of marriage. So mm-hmm. there is this presumption of sexual fidelity within marriage and no sexual relations outside of marriage. That is just the general presumption that we see in the Law of Moses. So, uh, so not committing adultery is something that we see early on in Exodus 20. Uh, this is just simply uh, not permitted, and if one is going to marry a Midianite woman, uh, it, is, it is someone who is, uh, again, a virgin, uh, and it is someone who is, you know, you have to go through this ceremony in order for her to become, you know, to become part of the people of God, uh, but it is not at all endorsing rape. Well, since you brought women, so let's consider some aspects of women. That, for instance, in Exodus 20 and 10 Commandments, women can be considered as property. When Caleb uh, wants to give away some men, he offers his daughter as a prize. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy, a woman will be forced to marry her rapist. Yeah, um, this is, again, I go into detail on this, mm-hmm. and uh, the question is, you know, the, you know, is this actually being forced? And, well, two things to keep in mind. We see, we see instances of actually statutory rape, where it is uh, consensual. We see a consensual uh, type of rape, uh, although the woman would be, you know, underage. Uh, and in that case, there would be some sort of a, an exploration as to whether this woman wanted to marry uh, the person with whom, again, it, it was consensual, but again, it was under, you know, underage or, 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 you know, it was illicit. And so remember this, too, that you also have, you know, if a woman has had sexual relations, and again, this reinforces the earlier point, that, uh, that sexual, sexual relations outside of marriage were taboo, uh, is that uh, you, you have, the, again, the presumption that, there, you know, that if a woman has had sex outside of marriage, then this is a stigma in the land of Israel. Uh, and remember, too, that both man and woman could be potentially, again, the max punishment was, was capital punishment for adultery. And it wasn't just the, man, it wasn't just the woman uh, singled out as though she was somehow, you know, you know, boys will be boys, but the women, they're the ones who bear the brunt of the punishment. No, it was both man and woman. Uh, who were to be, who were uh, under scrutiny here, and could be, uh, could be, could be punished even capitally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we see going on in these in these sorts of cases is, uh, you know, that there is a presumption of one uh, sexual purity upon going into marriage. But if there is statutory rape, then there is the question again. It's not a nece- It's not required. Um, because you can have the father, who is basically the point person in the home, to make these sorts of decisions about the about what the woman wants. And if she's you know, again, uh, you know, if he is a wise father, if he's you know, he's going to consider the well-being of his own daughter, uh, rather than forcing her into a situation that would be you know, utterly in opposition to her thinking. So there are judgments to be made. Uh, there are also judges who are part of the process, and uh, and they are. Uh, able to uh, enter into the judgment-making process as well, but but again, there are these sorts of considerations, and it's it's not as though this is something that is mandated. This is something that uh, that could you know, that would readily be entered into in terms of common consent. 
uh, before this is agreed to. So, so again, I think this, the, question, the way the question is framed uh, presupposes a lot about uh, this being forced, uh, about this being simply, you know, any old rapist, and therefore uh, this is what you have to do uh, if there is this, you know, case in which, you know, we do see, say, statutory rape. And I, and I, I make these sorts of distinctions in the book, and you can, you can look at the details on that. Mm-hmm. But what about the idea, though, that women could be seen as property and you'd give away a daughter just for yep. doing a valiant deed? Right. Well, well, a couple of things here. Uh, as we look, you know, just look at the backdrop of the, uh, you know, of, of the ancient Israelites back to the creation, mm-hmm. and we see that human beings, male and female, are made in the image of God. Now, there may be certain aspects of human fallenness, where you do have, say, a patriarchal society in Israel, uh, you know, and so there, there are, you know, the, so you do have the, the the man who is the point person, who is the kind of, sense, the legal point person as well as the, the kind of the buffer between the family and the outside world, and so there is this decision making that goes on that you know, and again, the the man is the presumed you know, head of the household. Now, this is of course. Uh, you know, we can say, well, we disagree with that. And you know, sure, there is a, you know, what some people have called a soft patriarchy in, in ancient Israel. But we also see uh, indications of equality. Uh, you know, we can see uh, you know, that, that you know, you know, in, in our own day, uh, well, let me go back. There is equality, for example, with regard to the fundamental status of women in Israel, that women uh, are equal partners in the life of Israel in terms of, for example, they are, you know, all Israelites are a, a kingdom of priests. They are to, you know, and we read about this in, in Exodus chapter 19, that they have a priestly status before God. It's not just the men. It is all Israelites who are to be a kingdom of priests to God. Uh, we see in, again, Exodus chapter 20, you know, honor your father and your mother. It's not just honor your father, but it's to honor your parents. Uh, for this cause, even going back to Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and his mother you know, and you know, will, you know, will cleave to his wife until he will become one flesh. Well, there is, again, there is this equality we see in the book of Proverbs, the, the, both the, the fatherly figure as well as the mother. You know, the, 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 um, the compiler of Proverbs is exhorting the, uh, this son to learn from both his father and his mother to take their advice, to take their wisdom seriously, and not to go out running after uh, you know those who want to uh, to to murder and to plunder and so forth. So you have again this affirmation repeatedly of equality. And as I said, even in the punishments of Israel, men and women alike were held responsible before the law. It wasn't as though women got off scot you know that men got off scot free and that the women bore the brunt. Uh, but no, is actually very much in keeping with the uh, with the keeping of this equality that is rooted in the creation. Yes, there were some cultural components, but even those we see challenged. For example, in the Book of Numbers, we see the daughters of Zelophehad who are uh, who have no there is no uh, male heir, and rather than this going to their uncle, uh, they they want the heir the the inheritance to come to them as daughters of uh, of their deceased father. Uh, and so Moses, you know, the Lord agrees, you know, he says, yes, these are right. And so, so, so we see, you know, you know over and over again, these, this patriarchy is being challenged uh, in, in, in the, the various things that are being said 
in the you know, both in the law as well as beyond. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go to another case of genocide that we use a lot in the Old Testament. So Saul has just become king now, right. and so he decides, hey, it's time to go and settle an old score, and goes and annihilates the the Amalekites, destroys every single woman, men, women, children, everything. And when Saul, when Samuel shows up, Samuel's not upset about the Amalekites being killed. He's more upset that, hey, you left some livestock here. You were supposed to kill that too, and you didn't even kill the king. So, I mean, what kind of God are we talking about again? Yeah, let's take a look at that passage, shall we? Mm -hmm. uh, often misunderstood, but I think we can uh, bring some clarity to the issues and make a few points that will, I think, help show that the, that this passage is often misinterpreted. Uh, remember, of course, that the Amalekites had been terrorizing the Israelites when they came over from the, you know, they crossed the Red Sea, and in Exodus 17 we read about how the Amalekites, this nomadic people, uh, attacked the Israelites after they're, you know, they're weary, they are, uh, they're not prepared to do battle, and of course, the Israelites end up with a victory, but this is a black mark uh, for the Amalekites for how they treated the vulnerable Israelites in this situation. Now, do the Amalekites repent? Uh, no, and, and again, I think that that's an important consideration. Uh, there is no making right uh, the wrong that had been done. There was no repentance like we see in the book of Jonah. We see, you know, we see repeatedly throughout the Old Testament that God is one who is willing to relent from sending punishment, but if there is no repentance, if the children continue the patterns of their fathers and don't turn from them, then God says that judgment will fall. And of course, this, this applies equally to the Israelites. And indeed, judgment does fall on the Israelites and also the people of Judah uh, in the southern kingdom. But what is interesting is that we pick up on hints of continued hostility and animosity toward the people of Israel and just ongoing wickedness on the part of the Amalekites. Uh, you know, one, one critic says, well, you know, these Amalekites are just doing what their parents were doing and so forth. Well, uh, you know, they are, that doesn't mean that they are not morally responsible for their actions, that they, say, couldn't help uh, doing what they did. No. Uh, we see, for example, in chapter 14, now this is before we get to 15, where God says uh, to destroy the Amalekites. We read that in chapter 14, verse 48, the Amalekites had just raided and plundered the Israelites. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So we need to read chapter 15 in its proper context. What preceded it? Well, the Amalekites were already busy at work, uh, causing trouble for the Israelites. So God tells King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Well, we read twice. One, by the, one, one time by the narrator, another time by Saul himself in chapter 15, that he had done what the Lord commanded, namely he destroyed, utterly destroyed, mm -hmm. the Amalekites. Now we're, we're told about a battle that he fights at a particular city uh, in you know, where the Amalekites are, that there's this fortress or citadel, and he fights against them. And we, we are told that there are no, apparently no more Amalekites because he, 
Saul utterly destroyed them. And then what we have is the language of the animals, that Saul kept some of the animals for himself. Uh, he first blamed the people and then acknowledged that he was uh, endorsing it. Uh, so they kept the, some of the choice animals. And then we, so he is chided not for, you know, we're already told that he utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So that's, so they are off the table, basically, except for King Agag. You know, it's now the animals that are being discussed. And so we see repeatedly that, you know, God does not delight in uh, burnt offerings, you know, to obey is better than to sacrifice, you know, so Samuel is challenging Saul on why he kept these animals uh, from this battle. Then we go on, and we find that Saul, uh, you know, he admits he's wrong, he should have taken care of the animals. Then we go on to read about how Samuel eventually thrusts through King Agag, who probably thought he was going to, you know, get away with things. Saul kept him alive because here is this prize. You know, he captured this uh, Amalekite king. Samuel thrusts him through and says that uh, your own mother will be childless. Why? Because you yourself have made women childless. So it wasn't as though King Agag was some really nice king, minding his own business. No, he had made women childless, and so he was getting the very thing that he was engaging in doing. So, so that's the sort of thing that you see going on here. So, so it's important to keep those things in context. Mm -hmm. Now, we come to chapters 27 uh, and 30 in the same book, where we see David now engaging an army of the Amalekites, fighting the same area that Saul did. And we, see, we read about how 400 Amalekite soldiers escape. So we see, you know, so people, well, did, did, didn't Saul do all that the Lord commanded? Well, where did this Amalekite army come from? Well, clearly what we see going on in the ancient Near East is, you know, you got a typical thing. There's hyperbole or exaggeration going on. And so Saul is one who yes, fights against the Amalekites and we're told that he utterly destroyed them. But then we see again uh, a whole batch of uh, Amalekites, a whole army, and 400 of them escape after David has been fighting them. So we see, again, they, they continue to show their faces that are around during the time of Hezekiah. Uh, there's even uh, Haman, the Agagite, that is an offspring of, uh, of Agag himself, uh, and he's threatening to, uh, to undermine and destroy the Israelites in the Persian Empire. So we see you know, these Jews in the Persian Empire. So we're seeing, uh, again, uh, you know, almost a thousand years of hostility or animosity toward the people of Israel. So again, if we're going to put this in proper context, let's look at all that is being said in terms of the provocation to conflict in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, uh, in terms of the uh, hyperbole that is expressed in uh, in First Corinthians, sorry, First Corinthians, uh, in First Samuel 15, uh, and as we read that in conjunction with chapters 27 and 30, we see that there are lots of other Amalekites. So we should not take the uh, language of utter destruction uh, in a literal fashion, because this was not done in the ancient Near East. If you had utter destruction or you utterly destroyed, uh, you could win a, a narrow margin of, with a narrow margin of victory, and still it be said of you that you utterly destroyed the people you fought against. So again, we have to be very careful about uh, misreading this text and looking at some of the other clues within the text itself and also uh, in the ancient Near East. Okay. Well, we are going to take a little station break right now so we can get in some 
necessary advertising and such. But I'm talking with Dr. R. Copan right now, talking about the book, Is God a More Monster? We'll be back right after this break. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. Check out CYIWorldwide.com, home of Rock Radio, free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you rock? Hey, this is Minister Grok. Thanks for listening. Although Grok Radio is free, there are costs to upkeep the website, podcast, and purchase Bibles and materials for street ministry. And while we are happy to pay this ourselves out of pocket, we will gladly accept any gifts if you feel led to support the shows and our street ministry. You can send a gift or love offering through our website at cyiworldwide.com. Thanks for your support, and God bless. Check out cyiworldwide.com. cyiworldwide.com. Home of Grok Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. cyiworldwide.com. Do you grok? Can't get enough of your favorite Grok Radio shows? Well, now you can download episodes for free. Check out the Grok Radio program archive at cyiworldwide.com. And we are back now to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'd like to thank you for listening. My guest this week is Dr. Paul Copan. We're talking about his book, Is God a More Monster? Now, we're not going to have a show next week because I'm busy with a wedding. Actually, it's some friends of mine getting married and they want me to perform a ceremony. So, I'm not going to be here doing a show. But when we're back in two weeks, my guest is going to be Dr. Clay Jones from Biola. And we're going to be talking about the problem of evil and how a Christian is supposed to answer that objection. But for now, we've got Dr. Paul Copan here, and we're talking about the morality of God in the Old Testament. Well, let's talk about a favorite one that is often used as well, slavery. You know, I'm listening to Stephen Pinker's, for instance, The Better Angels of Our Nation, where he talks about the Ten Commandments. He says, and you'd think that just once the commandments were mentioned, something such as, say, no slavery... For instance, apparently that wasn't worth mentioning. And you can't read the Old Testament and know that slavery isn't taking place. So, how is it that God justifies slaveries? Well, it's good to read the text closely. And I think that if we see the use, you know, how the term slave is used, we see that it's much different than what people typically associate with slavery or servitude in, say, the antebellum South or the pre-Civil War South. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we, we see some key differences, for example, when it comes to the, uh, the institution of, uh, you know, of, of servitude itself in Israel. Mm-hmm. We are looking at not chattel slavery, but indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. What we mean by that is that a person serves as an Israelite within Israel in a particular household 
again, as a result of poverty. This is not because it's been institutionalized. God does offer all sorts of uh, you know, regulations, rules to protect people from having to enter into servitude by leaning laws, for example, or when you're when you let your when you let the person who's been serving you go in Deuteronomy 15, you are to load him up with provision. Uh, you know, so there's there's all sorts of concern that is expressed for the poor, the widow, and the alien in uh, you know for the, you know, the, the the widow, the orphan, the alien, and, uh, and and the poor are also included in that. That the poor are to be protected. Those who are the most vulnerable are to are the ones who are to look out for the most. And so provision was made for those who are poor. So for example, if you uh, you could not afford the higher-end sacrificial animals like you know, a bull or something. You could offer something on a, on a simpler level like uh, turtle doves. Uh, so you, you wouldn't have to have this kind of uh, burden, uh, you know, financial uh, burden uh, placed upon you through the sacrificial system. So there were ways in which you could uh, you know, have your burdens lifted. But again, sometimes you hit rock bottom, you were impoverished, and you would... For example, Leviticus 25 says you know, a person sells himself into servitude. Well, what does that mean? Well, notice that it's not someone selling someone else into uh, servitude. It's actually a person selling himself. This is voluntary servitude. It's not imposed upon someone from the outside. It's through sheer unfortunate circumstances, through the devastation of, of maybe having crop failures and, and not being able to pay uh, one's debts that one says, well, I'm going to parcel out my family and my tribal territory, uh, most likely with relatives, to live under their roof, to be provided for with food and clothing and shelter. And, and, and again, once the time was up, uh, seven years, as Exodus uh, 31, uh, 21 reminds us, there is a seven-year cap unless you really love living with the person, uh, you know, the, the, quote, master or employer, that you live under him uh, permanently through, you know, and you go through the ceremony. But again, this is someone who voluntarily enters into this status of permanent servitude. So but basically, you, you are, it's a contractual arrangement that has a cap of seven years, and if you're fortunate enough to be living during the time of the year of Jubilee, if the year of Jubilee lets everyone go free, all debts uh, forgiven, uh, you know, in Leviticus 25. And so if you've only been working for three years, then all the land reverts back to the original owners, that debts are canceled, etc. So, so there are these ways in, in which uh, poverty is kept to a minimum in the law of Moses, and that people are protected from uh, from you know generational devastation uh, economically. Mm-hmm. So so again, when we're talking about servitude, a lot of times people think slavery of the uh, pre Civil War South, and that's an unfortunate translation uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, many of our modern translations have this. Actually, in the King James Version, you don't uh, you know have this uh, you know, this language of slavery, but servitude in the Old Testament. That's very interesting. But let me just draw out a few more contrasts here because, again, of this negative association. Uh, how did modern slavery begin? Well, it was through kidnapping. Well, in the ancient, uh, in the, the law of Moses, kidnapping was prohibited. In fact, it was a capital offense. You were not to kidnap someone. Uh, you, secondly, if a slave ran away from his master in the ancient Near East and came to Israel, the Israelites, 
unlike the fugitive slave law in the pre-Civil War South, you were not allowed to send this slave back to his master, but he was allowed to settle within any of the cities and towns of Israel. There is to be protection, harboring these slaves, whereas, say, under the Code of Hammurabi, the Babylonian Code, if you did not send a slave back to his master, you yourself could be capitally executed. Uh, so we see that difference as well. And a third difference is this, we, again, we see this in, in, in Exodus 21, that if you knock out the eye or the tooth of a servant, if someone, if the, the employer strikes his servant and uh, knocks out his eye or tooth, then that servant is to go free, debt-free. He, he no longer has this seven-year uh, obligation. Uh, he is to go free. Now, if he is struck and harmed to the point that he's you know, immediately killed, if the master or the employer strikes him and he is killed, then the master himself or the, you know, the, the employer is to be put to death. So you have capital punishment. It, you know, so it's, again, a, a remarkable difference between the pre-Civil War South and what was going on in ancient Israel because the, you know, unlike the slave in the antebellum South, in Israel, the servant was not at the disposal of his master to do whatever he wanted with them. But rather there were strictures, and, and again, it was something that was to be very clearly uh, guarded against any sort of injury against those who are working for you. Another point that we ought to keep in mind is this, that when we're using this term, you know, evid, you know, the, the term for slave or servant, you know, evid Adonai, the, the servant, like for example, we see this term, the servant of the Lord. It's actually an honorific title in some places, like Moses in Deuteronomy uh, you know, 34. You know, Moses is seen as one who is a servant of the Lord, and Joshua himself is seen as a servant of the Lord. This title is given to both of them uh, upon their death. Well, what does this mean? Well, the term servant can be a positive, you can be used in positive context or negative context, but what is significant is that the term itself suggests a relationship of dependency, and that is critical to remember. It's a relationship of dependency. We read, for example, in the book of Exodus that the Israelites are slaves or servants of Pharaoh. They're working, of course, they're, they're, you know, this is back-breaking uh, work. There is distressing, it is distressing, it is uh, very uh, harsh and ruthless. And, and what's interesting is that God says to Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go that you know, to move from servitude from under Pharaoh so that they may, he says, serve me in the wilderness. So that is, they're moving from one area of dependency, namely on Pharaoh, who was harsh with them, to moving into service to God in the wilderness. Again, a, not a harsh servitude. So we see that, but in both cases, there's this relationship of dependency. In fact, in uh, you know, in, in Exodus chapter five, the uh, the Egyptians themselves are called servants of Pharaoh. So there is this, you know, even the Egyptians are, uh, you know, servants. There, there's this dependency relationship on Pharaoh. 
So I think it's important to remember that uh, you can have this relationship of dependency, but it's not inherently a negative term. As, we, as we've seen, uh, Moses and Joshua are considered you know, servants of the Lord, same term that's being used, but, but again, it does not have that negative connotation. In fact, it's an honorific title. So, so it's helpful to keep the, that sort of terminology in mind as we look at these topics. But when we talk about Exodus 21 some, before we go talking about what happened in Egypt, when we get to Exodus 21, we do find that you have, if you hit a slave and they lose an eye or a tooth, then you're supposed to set them free. And if they get beat to death, then you're going to be punished. But Sarah says, you know, you can beat your slave and they get up in a day or two, you don't get punished. Yeah, a lot of people will say, yeah, you can, you can beat him with, to within an inch of his life. And, you know, if he walks around and, and so forth after, a, you know, a day or two, you know, he is, you know, there's no punishment that comes to, uh, to this, uh, you know, master or the employer. Well, a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, we have seen, first of all, that if there is, you know, if, if there is death that comes to a servant, what happens? Well, there is capital punishment here. Uh, the, that he, it is not as though the... Uh, this servant is someone whom the master owns. Uh, rather, this, this servant has rights that ought to be honored and respected. Uh, secondly, we see that, uh, you know, we take the example that I mentioned of the, the slave who runs away from a harsh master from a foreign country, and we're told that he is not to be sent back to his master, but is to, that one is to allow him to settle within any of the cities of Israel. Well, that's a foreigner. How much more should it be the case that if there is hardship and distress that comes from an Israelite employer to an Israelite uh, servant, how much more should there be refuge that comes to that person? Again, if there is any sort of permanent damage, there has to be, uh, again, that person has to go free. So again, uh, this is basically... Uh, a reminder that if there is, uh, if if this person has been struck or harmed, uh, struck and harmed, but not, you know, he hasn't, he wasn't immediately killed. You know, there is benefit of the doubt given to the person who struck him that he was not intentional in killing him or not intentionally trying to kill him, uh, but you know, acted in in uh, you know in. You know, anger or whatever, uh, for some perhaps you know, even justifiable reason uh, to you know to be angry, uh, not to strike him, but to to be angry. Uh, and again, there are countervailing circumstances, things to consider. And remember too that there are wise, supposed to be wise judges in Israel who are to make assessments about these sorts of things and to plead their case. And so it's not as though this this um, uh, servant in Israel has no recourse for. Uh, for remuneration, for uh, for having for, for changing locations or something like that. You know, there are those sorts of judgments. We shouldn't see these sorts of laws as utterly static, uh, and that there can't be judges who make assessments uh, as they see things on the ground, as they hear cases. They can make evaluations. Uh, we're often looking at, say, max penalties uh, in Israel, but that doesn't mean that there can't, for example, be lesser penalties or that judges can't make assessments based on certain complaints that are issued that really ought to be addressed. So, mm -hmm. so again, I think it's, it's um, you know, I think a, 
a, a flawed charge to say that this is just, yeah, another indication of the mistreatment uh, of those who are vulnerable. No, in, in fact, we read repeatedly, uh, for example, in the, you know, in, in the book of Leviticus or, or elsewhere, where, uh, where, say, servants have been working, well, you need to pay their wages. You need to be, you know, you need to, you know, you don't, don't take advantage of those who are working for you as servants. You are to, uh, you know, to be on guard, because why? You, too, were once servants, or, quote, slaves, in the land of Egypt. So just as you remembered servitude, you are to, you know, from Egypt, you are to engage in a graciousness. You are to, in, you are to let this Exodus experience inform how you treat those who are the most vulnerable in your own society. And so that, that is a theme, a theme that, is, that pervades the law of Moses, and we shouldn't ignore that either. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that what you're listening to, it's uh, provided for by funders and listeners like you. Now, we work in conjunction with CYI Worldwide, so you can go to CYIWorldwide.com and promote their ministry there, and there's a whole host of programs, including Deeper Waters. But if you want your donation to specifically go to Deeper Waters, go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com. There are a number of ways you can donate to us there. One thing way that might interest you is you can go to our Amazon store and buy books that uh, if you buy them through us, we get some of the proceeds, including books that we talk about on the podcast, such as Dr. Paul Copan's Today that we're talking about. And you can also go on Amazon and purchase my latest ebook that I've written with my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, Defining Inerrancy. Just four bucks on Kindle, and there's a new one that's coming out very soon. Don't know exactly when, but it's an anthology of writings I've put together myself dealing with the new atheists. I've written them, but JP's helped do a lot of work with the editing and such. And so that one will be out soon. I encourage you all to get it, and then just click the donate button if you want to. And all donations to us go through risenjesus.com, the ministry of Mike Lacona. And send me or Mike an email and say, hey, Nick, I like your show. I like what you're doing, and I want to support it. I want to encourage you to keep doing it. And we'll make sure that we know about that, and that way we can get every penny of what you donate to us. Now, Dr. Dr. Copan, is there any cause that you'd like people to support that can help you out, too? Sure. Well, it's not so much helping me out, but yeah. I think an important uh opportunity to give would be to the uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society. Mm. Uh, the, basically the website is epsociety.org mm. and what the Evangelical Philosophical Society does is it engages in uh, an annual apologetics conference leading thinkers in philosophy and uh, who are Christians and also you know, doing work in biblical studies and theology and archaeology and so forth. They come to speak at a conference that is put on for uh, church, local churches uh, this coming November. It will be in the San Diego area. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we, we see all sorts of good things happening through the Ministry of Apologetics training uh, that comes through these annual conferences. Great speakers, people like Lee Strobel. We've had N.T. Wright come and speak, uh, Alvin Plantinga, uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. You know, again, leading speakers who are doing excellent work, cutting-edge work in the area of, um, again, New Testament, uh, philosophy, apologetics, etc. 
And, and also they put out a journal called Philosophia Christi. If you are into apologetics and philosophy as a Christian, this is a journal you should not do without. You become an associate member or a full member. Uh, you can come to our annual meetings in uh, November uh, that, uh, where papers are presented, where you can meet with uh, people who are doing, who are writing the books, who are writing the journal articles, who are uh, making a difference in the area of Christian philosophy. Uh, and so I would encourage you to do this. There are people who want to come from overseas who can't afford to come to the annual meetings and so, uh, so to offer, you know, to, to give funds to people who are interested in, in coming but can't afford it themselves. This is a great help to make mm -hmm. the EPS more of an international movement. Uh, and so we want to encourage you to, to give generously to this uh, work. Uh, a lot of people who are working in the EPS, I mean, they're, you know, they're giving a lot of their time and energy, and, uh, and, and fundraising is a, is a huge uh, effort, so we encourage people to, to give to this ministry uh, as, uh, as, as, a, as it's a vital ministry, it's doing excellent work, has a great vision, uh, and uh, we want to, as many people on board as possible. Yeah, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my fellow bibliophiles, my like humans, but I've been told that when you all get together, that you have several new books that are out on display, and they come at very reduced prices. Uh, that's a wonderful thing, yes. Uh, when you come to the book tables at uh, the Evangelical Philosophical and Theological Society meetings, yeah, you'll get books at 50 percent off uh, often, and so it's a great place to, uh, to, to get, do your book buying uh, and also to meet with people who are writing those books. Yeah, uh, I can already be sure my wife is in the next room saying, I better make sure he never gets to go to one of those conferences because he'll go crazy at the book table. Yes, there's also the virtue of self-control. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's get back to talking about the book is God a moral monster and looking at charges in the Old Testament. We just talk about slavery and I always find it interesting when I hear people talk about what God does to Egypt in the Old Testament. Well, first off, they complain about God endorsing slavery. And then when God punishes a nation that's abusing a nation in slavery, they complain about that too. Yes, isn't that ironic? Uh -huh. uh, that you have, again, and, and this is a different kind of servitude from what we see in the land of Israel. Uh, we see a, a brutal oppression in Egypt, but yet, uh, but again, uh, when they are freed, uh, you know, it's as though that's irrelevant. Um, you know, and so, so yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good, it's a point worth, uh, worth noting. Mm. It's kind of like the, you know, the, again, the doctrine of hell, again, however that is to be understood, whether metaphorically or whatever. Um, but people say, you know, how could a good God allow all this evil in the world? Well, you talk about the, the doctrine of final separation from God, uh, that this is the worst possible thing that a human could experience. Uh, and, well, you know, here God is indeed addressing the problem of evil. Uh, that we need to remember that evil is not something that is only a present that, is, that we need to think about as a present concern. But again, there are future uh, considerations too. That God has done something to, with regard to the problem of evil at the cross of Christ, and God will one day eradicate uh, evil. And, and and this is one way of you know, this is one part of God's uh, addressing the problem of evil. But yet, uh, some people don't like the doctrine of hell. But yet, they 
have, hold against God that he allows evil in the world, and so it's as though God can't win either way. Yeah. But I can already picture a skeptic saying, well, you know, the thing that makes the situation in Egypt different is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart just so he can pour out some more punishment. I mean, isn't that kind of stacking the deck means that Pharaoh's no longer responsible? Yeah, well, let's, let's check out the kind of fellow that Pharaoh was, shall we? Mm-hmm. Uh, before we even get to God, you know, the question of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we see that Pharaoh is already a pretty nasty guy. So, you know, he is harsh, he's brutal with the Israelites, uh, he enslaves them, you know, this uh, Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, uh, you know, he doesn't want the Israelites to become, uh, to gain any sort of upper hand, so what does he do? He oppresses them. Uh, so he's already got a hardened heart. He's already a nasty guy. Uh, he is one who is not concerned about the well-being of the Israelites. He is using the Israelites. Uh, and thus there is this harsh oppression. Uh, and, 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 and so before God even talks to Moses about hardening Pharaoh's heart, uh, we see that the cries of the Israelites are ascending to God. And, and it's a picture of God being grieved about this, God being, uh, you know, again, dismayed about this. And so, so, well, what's behind the dismay? The very self-hardened heart of Pharaoh that led to all of this in the first place. So, so before we start talking about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, let's remember that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. Pharaoh, and, and so, can God harden? Does God harden potentially soft hearts? Uh, no, God hardens those hearts that have already been hardened by themselves. Uh, and so, you know, does God have to harden a heart? No, well, no, he doesn't. God says we read in Romans chapter nine. God, God says, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna harden whom I harden. And, uh, and so he, for his purposes, he might harden someone's heart. Well, what does that mean? Well, I mean, even a, a strong uh, um, Calvinist like Jonathan Edwards uh, saw that hardening was basically God's withdrawing his grace, uh, God withdrawing these influences uh, that, tried to, that, that in, in an effort to move people toward repentance. God withdraws those and basically says, okay, this is the choice that you've made. I'm going to let you see it in all of its horror. And that's what Romans 1 is all about. God is giving them over to the desires of their hearts. And so basically when we see God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we see God giving Pharaoh over to the desires of his heart. And he is just going to say, okay, we'll let this play out. We'll let you have your way. Uh, and then God, as a result, brings about his own, you know, brings the plagues, brings the judgment, uh, eventually brings Israel out of Egypt. So, so again, it's important to keep that sort of a thing in mind. Uh, you know, we, we do see, uh, you know, for example, God's own, uh, you know, God's, uh, uh, in, you know, take a passage like, uh, you know, Psalm, uh, Psalm 8110, where God says, you know, I'm the Lord, you know, I'm your God, uh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Well, what do, what do the people do? Let's say, you know, here's God is opening up his gracious uh, storehouse to them and says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. So what does God do? I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Now notice, it says, oh, that my people would listen to me. That's what God says, that Israel would walk in my way. So God, yes, he gives them over to the hardness of their hearts. You know, he hardens their hearts. But God desires that they would indeed turn. Uh, you know, we see this sort of thing in Isaiah chapter 5, where God is, 
telling you this story of this, uh, the, the story of the vineyard, this, uh, where God is doing all of these things for Israel. You know, Israel is this vineyard, uh, this, you know, these vines that is, they're supposed to produce good fruit. Uh, and so God tells this song of the vineyard of how he did all of these things for his vineyard. But you know, what ends up happening? Well, you know, instead of producing the, you know, the fruits of, uh, of righteousness, you know, God, it says, it only produced worthless grapes. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, you know, they, you know, it says that God had done all of these things, and yet Israel was only producing worthless grapes. So God says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And then mm-hmm. God says, now what more was I to do for my vineyard than mm-hmm. had been done in it? So God is basically you know, exasperated uh, at these people. So he's, again, uh, you know, we see this sort of a dynamic. So let's not forget divine exasperation uh, as we look at the question of, uh, of hardening of hearts. We've already talked about how the conquest has some hyperbolic language of the Amalekites and Midianites and such. So since you mentioned bizarre laws and events in the Old Testament, let's look at some of those in a favorite one that a lot of skeptics like to point to is when we come to Second Kings 2, we have Elisha out walking around, he's just minding his own business, and now come these little kids, and they just say, go up to Bodhead, go up to Bodhead, and he turns and he curses him, and out come, 42 be- out come these two bears that tear 42 of these little children up. I mean, what, what's going on in this story? Well, the term that's used for these youths, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's the term he actually used of, uh, of Solomon himself, who was not a little, little twink. Uh, he was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, well-grown young man. He's probably like, you know, um, kind of tough guys who are, you know, again, on the younger side, uh, but yet who are very scornful of the, uh, you know, of the prophet uh, Elijah, uh, you know, again, uh, mocking him dishonoring him. And now some people say, well, you know, they'll say, you know, Elijah was just a cranky prophet. Well, remember that he would not have had any, he doesn't have any power unless the Lord gives it to him. So, you know, it's the Lord who is behind this uh, sort of a thing, uh, you know, first and foremost. And so God sends judgment upon these young, you know, these uh, young toughs, uh, these tough guys, uh, you know, maybe, you know, teenagers, maybe a little bit beyond. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and again, brings judgments uh, upon them. Again, there are other implications here. There could be some sort of a uh, mockery of him in terms of even, uh, you know, you know I- idolatry. Uh, you know, you're, you're going up to you know, where he was going, where these, uh, you know, these places where uh, there was false worship, you know, Bethel and Dan, uh, and, uh, you know, these, these calves that had been there. And so... Uh, so there could be some sort of a uh, mockery uh, that is going on that is associating him with idolatry. Again, that's you know some people might say that's reading into the text, but there could be something along those lines. But at any rate, um, here is a uh, a prophet who has been honored by God, someone who is uh, to be treated as an authority and a spokesman for God. And here are these uh, people who are young men who are uh, who are warning him and scoffing at him. And this is, a uh, again, a very severe uh, lesson to be learned, something that can wake people up 
and, uh, and, and alert them to the fact you, you don't mess with holy things here. You don't mess with God's uh, appointed prophets who are to be speaking the truth of God into this land that needs to be changed uh, and uh, transformed. Uh, we, we see the same sort of thing. Again, it's a different sin, but we see a very sobering account of what happens when, uh, when you know, for example, Ananias and Sapphira Mm-hmm. Uh, try to make themselves look more pious than they really are, by more generous than they really are, by saying that they sold their land for such and such, and they actually kept back a portion of the money. And so uh, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, catches them in a lie, and God uh, strikes them dead. And so they are, uh, again, an example. What happens? The church is filled with fear. You see that there is a reminder that no, you don't take God lightly. You don't take a holy God uh, you, you know, as though he is to be domesticated and tamed and, uh, or ignored. Uh, no, this is a God who is the king of the universe. He is the moral authority. Uh, yes, he is good, but he is also severe. And if you mess with him, uh, you know, it will be, you know, again, you will come to judgment. It's sort of like Aslan in the, uh, in the line which the wardrobe, this uh, Jesus figure, uh, Aslan, the lion. And uh, you know, Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver about, uh, about the nature of this uh, beast she hasn't yet laid eyes on. And she says, you know, you know, is he safe? Well, and and uh, Mr. Beaver says, you know, safe? Who said anything about safe? But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see in the Chronicles of Narnia that there is a ferocity, a severity to uh, to Aslan, this Jesus figure. Uh, you know, he's gracious, he's kind, he's compassionate, but do not cross him. Uh, this is the, the Jesus who makes a whip and drives out money changers for the temple. Yes, this Jesus who took people, you know, little children, onto his lap. He's also one who drives money changers out of temples. And uh, we see that sort of thing in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, I find it fascinating when I dialogue with atheists about the problem of evil in the Old Testament God, really. So, you know, God should give some sort of evidence that he's out there, that he exists, and then when they're presented with the nature of God, they complain about him. So I'm listening, even if this God revealed himself to you, you wouldn't want to worship him anyway. And there's this whole idea that God owes me such and such, that God has no right to do such and such to me. Yeah, yeah, there is frequently that sort of a uh, demand, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when, when people are, and I think you're right to point out, yeah, well, what, you know, is evidence really the issue here? Mm-hmm. Uh, if it were strictly a matter of evidence, then, you know, maybe you would not be as resistant to it, maybe you'd be a little more open to it, but, but you know, a lot of times the hardness, the, uh, you know, maybe the anger, the hostility that you see sometimes in these new atheists and other atheists and many of the leading atheists throughout history, uh, you, you, you need to consider, well, maybe there's something more that's going on here. Uh, maybe, maybe we need to ask questions like, well, what if you had ample evidence that there is a God who exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, etc., etc.? Would you then believe in him? Would you put your trust in him? I think that that's an important question because it gets past the evidence issue and really looks at the 
heart motivations and so forth. And, mm-hmm. and maybe there are certain theological misunderstandings that people have about what God is, you know, who God is, or you know, they false expectations of, you know, well, I think God should be this way. Well, those can be unpacked once you, in a sense, clear the deck and say, well, really, is it a matter of evidence? Or are there other deeper, maybe emotional or personal issues that, uh, that really prevent you from considering the Christian faith uh, with uh, with sobering seriousness here, so so yeah, that's that's a good point to make, and we ought to press that point a little bit more as we do apologetics. Now let's talk about another bizarre incident in the Old Testament. In the Book of Numbers, there's a man arrested for a crime, and there's debate in the community: what should we do with him? What should we do with him? And we go to Moses, and Moses, says, well, let's go to God and see what God has to say. And God looks at the situation and says. Put the man to death. Now, what's his great crime? He was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Now, isn't this going a bit beyond realistic punishment for a crime? Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, is this uh, you know a, a something that is utterly uh, disproportionate? Uh, well, uh, keep in mind that the the law has already been given. Uh, that God is one who has already mentioned. Uh, that is to be a day in which you cease from your labors. Uh, you have the example, for example, you, well, sorry, you have the example of the manna uh, in, uh, for example, Exodus 16, where it is you are not to gather or even think to gather uh, manna on uh, on the Sabbath. Um, and uh, you know, and, and in fact, there were people who uh, you know who did not gather, and they didn't have. You know, and again, they were thinking that something would come on the Sabbath, and it didn't. And then there were others who you know, hoarded it, and that it, it, it rotted. Um, but there would be enough for them if they gathered the day before the Sabbath to have enough for both days. Um, but but you know, so you have a picture there of you know, even gathering manna for food is something that was symbolically pictured as you know, again, this is something you don't do. Uh, let alone gathering sticks. So that's Exodus 60. You get to the you know, chapter 20, mm-hmm. uh, and you have the Ten Commandments. And, and, uh, and again, this is all, you know, this, this picking up sticks is something that happens in the context of God's very clear commands. Mm-hmm. Now, there are punishments that come, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where these can be exemplary, where uh, judgment falls upon someone as an example to Israel, and so you kind of see the max penalty uh, that is given. But again, as uh, you know, Gordon Wenham, for example, argues in his book um, uh, Torah as Story, uh, he, you know, in his book Torah as Story, he, he mentions how the punishments are often exemplary or are given the kind of the maximum punishment. But again, in various scenarios, there could be a lessened punishment that is given, but again, here it is to set an example for the people of Israel. So, so again, there are, there's you know, dispute upon, uh, about these things, and, uh, and, and some people will argue, uh, uh, like you know, Ray Westbrook, Raymond Westbrook, um, who had been at the University of Chicago, a noted ancient Near Eastern scholar, that, uh, that these, were, again, were, were maximum penalties, but, and, and you didn't have people who were there to, you know, as executioners or, or something like that, people who were, you know, uh, you know that that was their vocation uh, to, to do this, but rather, uh, you know, you had judgment calls that are made by the judges, and sometimes, you know, for, apart from murder, there would be monetary compensation for many of these punishments 
that were, you know, in, in, you know, in, in a number of cases, you know, capital offenses, but could do, but again, be, could, could be commuted sentences to even some sort of financial compensation. And that's important because uh, the laws of the Old Testament are what we call didactic, and that they were general principles rather than filling out every single possible exceptional scenario whatsoever. Indeed. Because, for instance, one thing I've been told, for instance, is that if uh, a burglary is specifically defined as a crime that takes place at night, so if a good defense lawyer has someone on trial for burglary, the first question they're going to be asking is, what time did it take place? Right. And that if we took even just one of our laws, or stipulations such as a copyright law, just one of those laws could be longer than the Torah itself. Yeah, exactly. The the point to be to be made here that there are uh, you know some laws that serve as guides, but again, it's not a comp- you know the Mosaic law is not some sort of comprehensive law code, but it's simply uh, you know an, an example. Uh, it gives certain. Uh, you know, certain scenarios, but it, but again, is not intended to comprehensive. Well, let's talk about a situation described that could very well lead to the extinction of our species in America if we followed it. And that would be that in Deuteronomy, we're told that if a child talks back to his parents and is dishonorable to them, where well, that child is to be brought to the elders of the community and be a Parents say, your little Johnny is wicked and rebellious. He's not cleaning his room when we ask him to. He doesn't have eat his supper when we tell him to. So we just need to put him to death. And that could pretty much cure every young person in America today if we follow that consistently. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's, again, talk about that. Of course, this uh, you know, passage from Deuteronomy 21 is mm-hmm. the... Uh, passage that is actually used against Jesus, uh, uh, you know, that's quoted from, you know, being a glutton and a drunkard. Mm. Uh, that this is a uh, a child who, you know, I mean, in this in this context, uh, who is dishonoring his parents. But again, this is not um, the this is not a passage that is talking about not cleaning up one's room. Uh, it's not a passage that talks about um, spending too much time playing video games. Uh, and of course, parents need to take control of those sorts of things. Um, here we've got someone who is uh, older and should know better. I mean, uh, what uh, little kid is, you know, again, we're talking about, you know, you know being a drunkard here. You know, we're talking about someone who is going to be, uh, you know, who is older uh, and, uh, and, and is disregarding the authority of his own parents. And of course, you know, again, this is a, uh, again, an exemplification of the, uh, again, the disobedience to the uh, the fifth commandment to honor one's own uh, father and mother. Well, uh, you know what uh, you know what is to be done uh, in this situation. And again, we're we're we are looking at a uh, again the maximum penalty here. This is something that is uh, you know and, and again exemplary. Uh, it is giving the uh, you know you know the the highest uh, possible penalty here. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that there could not be, you know, there, there may be some sons that are more rebellious, uh, less, uh, you know, that, that are so, maybe somewhat correctable through maybe being put into boot camp or something like that. Uh, and, and so, you know, you, a judge makes those sorts of calls based upon what he sees in front of him. Uh, but the general point here is that this uh, cuts at the very heart and fabric 
of the family and plus the society that uh, that it is important for uh, for children, uh, you know, for young people not to dishonor uh, their parents, uh, but to have a spirit of cooperation and obedience rather than of rebellion and uh, and, and being a menace to society. I mean, you think about this: you've got a let's you, you've got a firstborn son who turns out to be a glutton and a drunkard. Well, are you know here the typically you'd have a the inheritance the double portion going to the firstborn. Well, do you want to uh, give money to someone who is inevitably going to squander it on more food and drink and whatever? Uh, no, this is this is something that that uh, really is for the broader well-being of, of the entire family, uh, not simply of this individual. And so when you have something that so utterly disrupts the well-being of the, the, of the family, this is, again, a very serious and sobering statement that is to be made uh, on, on, what, on, on addressing this problem that, that again, this, this person will not listen, this young person will not listen. Um, again, and, and what, what are you going to do? Are you gonna, where are you going to send him? You know, again, you've got limited, uh, you don't have a you know, juvenile uh, detention center or something like that. You Are, are you going to send him to live with relatives where he's going to cause all sorts of trouble? You don't have a lot of options here. Uh, you you do have, uh, and I mean, I think of, uh, you know, in our day where people can, you know, be, in a sense, uh, you know, kind of kicked out of their homes and you know, kids can be kicked out of their homes at a, you know, once they're legal and, uh, and, and kind of make it on their own without having family support. In Israel, things were much more interconnected. And, uh, and, and uh, of course, there's also, you know, I mean, there are a number of, you know, shame, shame factors and so on that figure into this here. But, but again, it is making a strong statement, yes, about the importance of honoring one's parents, of honoring the fifth commandment, that this is a way that God, uh, again, parents ought to be reasonable too. Parents ought not to be you know, harsh and, uh, and uh, overbearing with their children. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, parental authority is not to be ignored either. And so this is, again, a strong statement about what God calls, uh, calls on Israel to do uh, in these extreme circumstances. You know, when we look at all these situations and say that part of the reason we sometimes have such a seem to have such a hard time in our society is because we don't really take the concept of sin as serious anymore. And when I read the Old Testament, honestly, what surprises me isn't the way God deals with sin that I see, but what surprises me most is when I see the self restraint He uses, especially in the case of Israel, because most of us would probably even say. Oh, okay, let's just go ahead and wipe him off the map already, okay? But he doesn't. Could part of it then be that we just don't take sin seriously in our culture anymore, so we think God's over the top? Yeah, no, you're right. To be, it's important to point that out, too. I mean, God, you know, we read in, you know, in the book of Exodus, you know, that God is, you know, you know that gracious, mm. you know, he is gracious and compassionate, you know, slow to anger, uh, abounding in loving kindness and so forth. Uh, you know, but... We also see that God, it says that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, he does forgive transgression and sin, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, and so he will, uh, you know, that he will oppose those who oppose him. And uh, so, so you see, as, as Romans 11:22 says, Behold the kindness and the severity of God. I think a lot of people want to latch on to the kindness of God, but... They don't have room for a cosmic authority, 
in their uh, in their metaphysical structure. Uh, God is to be uh, tame and or tameable, and uh, and therefore God is not to serve as any sort of threat to uh, to my own comfort, my own sense of well-being. Uh, well, that's not what a cosmic authority is going to be about. Uh, you know, I am not the cosmic authority, but if there is a cosmic authority, mm-hmm. then you can expect that there will be some, uh, you know, there will be a, in a sense, a knocking of heads, so to speak, that God's ways are to be uh, you know, followed uh, as opposed to, you know, you know, as opposed to you know, my ways, which are, uh, can be you know, wayward and misguided and, uh, and, and ill-informed, etc., so, so again, what we what we're talking about here is a God who uh, takes justice here. That God is not only love, as First John says, but He is also light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And so, so we do see a God who is patient. He pleads with His people. He says, "Why will you die, O house of Israel?" He is calling on them to repent. He doesn't want to send judgment. God is reluctant to do so, as Lamentations 3 says, that he, now that he sends his judgment uh, reluctantly, uh, that God punishes, uh, not because he desires it, uh, but, because, uh, but again, because justice demands that. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of God that we're talking about, not a God who uh, conveniently fits into uh, our, own, uh, you know, you know, our own world in which we are the center. But at the same time, we have to always stress, too, he is a God who, as you've said before, he's willing to forgive anyone who sincerely comes to him and repents. And that's Old Testament and New Testament both. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think of Jonah and how Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because he knows that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, mm-hmm. and abounding in loving kindness. He doesn't want this kind of a, uh, you know, he doesn't want the Ninevites to experience God's forgiveness or relenting in judgment. He wants them to be wiped out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of odd. In some ways it seems like Jonah could, in fact, empathize with the new atheists today, and at the same time, they still have a problem with the whole concept because, hey, God's a, you know, God should judge these people, but he's not. He's letting them off a hook. Once again, God can't seem to win. Yeah, that's, that's uh, exactly right. Uh, God is one who sends his, you know, again, I, mean, I think of Jeremiah chapter 18, where God says that if a you know, nation that is you know, righteous uh, conducts itself wickedly, well, God is going to think better of uh, what, he, you know, what he's going to do for that nation, bring judgment upon it. And likewise, if there's a wicked nation that repents, think of the Amalekites, think of the Midianites or whatever, uh, you know, or the Canaanites, then God would relent if they did indeed repent. But they refuse to do so, and God reluctantly uh, brings judgment upon them. We're, we're getting into the final portion of our show here. We're going to wrap up in about five minutes or so. So it's been a fascinating interview. I hope it's answered a lot of questions for a lot of people. But if they say, you know, I've got some more questions. I'm really not sure. I want to find out more about Dr. Copan and what he's doing. Uh, can, where can people find you online? Well, my website is paulcopan, C-O-P-A-N, dot com, paulcopan.com. And, uh, you know, again, there are resources there. And, again, books like Is God a Moral Monster? And, again, this forthcoming book, Did God Really Command Genocide? that go into detail on responding to these sorts of objections and giving some 
uh, moral and theological clarity to these sorts of issues that, uh, that often uh, plague people. We have a book, Is God a More Monster? As I've said, it's available in the Deeper Waters Amazon store right now. And you can find a link to that from the Deeper Waters blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com. But it's on Amazon for $9.99 on Kindle and $13.31 in paperback for a new book. So with only a few minutes left here, Dr. Copan, is there any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, the theme that we have talked about of a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, is also a God who uh, takes his claim upon our lives very seriously, and we ought to as well, uh, that, uh, that we are not in charge of the universe, that God is, uh, that, God's, uh, that God calls us to a, you know, a higher standard than our own selves, and uh, a lot of people don't like that, but I encourage us to think along the lines of, uh, of a God who is not tameable, uh, a, a God like Aslan, who uh, in, in a rightful way of thinking should scare us, uh, mm-hmm. particularly when we are living in a way that is uh, opposed to his purposes, that, uh, as I said, this Jesus who welcomes children is also one who drives out money changers when they're engaging in uh, practices and attitudes that are uh, you know, utterly in conflict with the nature of the God of the universe, who is both just as well as loving. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage us to think along those lines as we go through the Old Testament, that we not only think of the God who, uh, who is gracious and compassionate, but also brings judgment uh, when, uh, when sin reaches its capacity, that, that when God is, that God is one who takes sin seriously, and we ought to do so in our own lives, because God is the cosmic authority, and that he is not a, uh, you know, a, some sort of evil creator, and we just listen to him, whatever, no, he is the, uh, the being than which nothing greater can be conceived, he is a maximally excellent being, and so often we need to bring our own thinking with regard to morality and so forth uh, into line with his. Uh, rather than uh, wanting to water it down uh, and make perhaps our own lives more comfortable, but yet being in denial of the, the moral order of the universe. Well, Dr. Copan, it's been a fascinating interview with you. I hope you've enjoyed yourself, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. All right. Well, thank you very much. Nick, great to be with you. And for now, I'm Nick Peters with Deeper Waters Podcast. I can remind you all next week, um, next, in two weeks, I should say, Dr. Clay Jones of Biola will be my guest talking about the problem of Ebert. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio. Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock Radio 2.0.